Daniel and chapter 9 again, please, to refresh our memories as to that passage. Daniel and chapter 9. Verse 16 of the chapter, Daniel 9 and 16, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations, and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. The letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 11. Romans 11 and verse 25. For I would not, brethren that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And we do trust God will bless this further reading of his good word today. Now, if you've been here over the weekend, you know that we uh, were looking yesterday at something of the answer still in the future to the prayer, that very touching and passionate prayer of Daniel. And his great concern that the city should be restored will be answered one day, but the scripture tells us that Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until, until, there's that time marker, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. He had great concern for the sanctuary that was desolate. There was nothing there for God. The place where God had promised to meet with his people was desolate. And so he prayed that the sanctuary would be restored. And one day it will be. But not until. Not until the nation says, Blessed be he that cometh in the the name of the Lord. And he had a great heart for God's people. 
And so he prayed for the people of the captivity. Specifically, they were the people of Judah. But he prayed for them, and he often prayed for the whole nation. And it's that that we want to think about for a few moments today. The restoration of God's earthly people. For I would not, says Paul, to the Romans, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Most of you would know that a New Testament mystery is not something that is hard to understand. It's not something that is in itself impenetrable. It is simply truth that God has chosen not to reveal until this particular age. It was hidden beforehand, and it was hidden very deliberately. So that which had been hidden in the past has now been revealed. And what has been revealed is that there is a judicial blindness upon the nation of Israel. Blindness, in part, is happened to Israel. This isn't partial blindness upon all the nation. It's total blindness upon a part of the nation. Blindness in part. Not partial blindness upon all the nation. Total blindness on a part of the nation. And that's something which hadn't been revealed in Old Testament days, but is now revealed. And that blindness, that state of blindness, on part of the nation, is going to continue, says the Scripture, until, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So we need to think about that expression. What does it mean when it speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles? You go back into the chapter to verse number 12, and it speaks about the fullness of the Jew. So there's a fullness associated with Israel, there's a fullness associated with the Gentiles, and we will explore a little of that. Now, before I do so, uh, I share the concern of my beloved brother Andrew um, about the way in which material for Bible study is gleaned today. There are resources available that certainly weren't available in my day, and, um, uh, and we're very thankful to God that we have such access to scholarship and resources as we do. But many of you keen younger ones especially uh, will be finding your ways onto Bible teaching websites, and, and I say it kindly and lovingly, you don't know enough yet to know what you're reading. The devil is very adept at deceiving. If you came across a website that, that, that had a half a page flashing at you, denying the deity of Christ, you, you would know you were on the wrong website. But the devil doesn't work like that. He loves to infiltrate error into truth. Now, we're not going to major on this, except to say that a lot of those websites you're exposed to, and that I know some of you visit, they do not follow what is the basic architecture of your Bible. They are enemies of what has become known as dispensationalism. Now, I know of no other architecture of our Bible that enables the Bible to be interpreted properly. Uh, dispensationalism is trashed today by many people in favor of 
the offspring of what is known as Reformed theology. There is an awful lot of wrong teaching that says God has dispensed entirely with Israel, and he has replaced Israel in his affections with the church, and that all the promises that he made to Israel in the past are now being fulfilled in the church. That is wrong. Full stop. Covenant theology, so-called, is wrong. Full stop. And you might say, well, you might be a big man, but you've got a big head as well. Who are you to say what's right and what's wrong? Well, I'm not saying it, but the Word of God would instruct us as to what's right and what's wrong. And having studied my Bible for a few years, I would understand, I trust, humbly before God, that unless you see clearly that God has a distinct program for the Jew, a distinct program for the Gentile, and a distinct program for the church, unless you see that, then you will not understand your Bibles. The only way these other systems work is to take that which is literal and allegorize it and explain it away. You will never understand your Bibles through the, the, that means. So I would make this appeal. I'm sure the most of you, perhaps not all, sadly, but the most of you will have been well-parented and your parents would take a great interest what you're looking at on your uh, computers and on your phones and so forth. Now, would you please take this appeal to heart, young brother, young sister, that, that if you find a website that is being of some help to you, apparently, you're enjoying it, you like the way it appears, you're, you're enjoying the stuff that's on it uh, and the way it's presented, would you, would you make sure that as early as possible you go and speak with your overseers? And tell them that you found this website or someone has suggested this website to you and, and, and say to them with honest humility, I don't know enough yet to know whether this is good for me or not. Would you advise me? Because the great danger of this modern uh, exposure to uh, all these different doctrines through technology is that so much of this is going under the radar of the overseers. We have three dear men at home in the Forest Assembly. Uh, they've been very faithful men. They've been in the Assembly over 70 years. They're over 90 now. I'm not being cheeky to them or mocking them when I say they wouldn't know the difference between the World Wide Web and a spider's web. They're very humble men. They live very humble, simple lives. They don't have it. They don't need it. They don't understand it. And yet... It's providing a younger generation with ways of communic communicating with each other and, and, and learning things and absorbing things that these dear brethren have got no knowledge of. For your own sakes. Would you take that on board? Go to somebody of spiritual maturity, preferably your overseers. They are the ones who watch for your souls. And just say, now, look, I found this. I'm looking at this. I've been listening to this man. He sounds really good. And that's the trouble they do. For your own sake. For the sake of the continuity of faithful doctrine, that form of sound words. Would you do that? Just make it part of your discipline. To go to your overseers. Let them know what you're reading, what you're looking at, what you're listening to. And they will be able to advise you accordingly. So a lot of that material that you'll find online will deny that there's any future for Israel. 
And the only way that you can ignore or, or, or get around such clear teaching in the Bible that there is a future for Israel, the only way you can get around that is by allegorizing. That means simply not taking literally. You, you, you start to make the Bible uh, little more than something like one of Tolkien's books or C.S. Lewis. You, you're reducing it from the clear word of God to just being a book about fable. So let's see what Paul said about it. Because here in the Roman epistle, those of you who know this very well will please tolerate me while I just go through it because there's many here perhaps who haven't heard it. Romans 1 to 8 is the most concentrated doctrine of the gospel that you're going to find in your Bible. Tremendous um, piece of work by Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that, that takes us from the awful state of condemnation right the way through to glorification in chapter 8. Condemnation, justification, salvation, sanctification, these great gospel truths are all there in chapters 1 to 8 of Romans. And, and Paul, following his usual style, ha having taken us to that very high ground of Romans 8, would then ordinarily, perhaps, have gone to what we know as Romans 12 and 1. Therefore, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, Romans 12 is the fitting moral outcome from the teaching of chapters 1 to 8. But Paul understands that in the teaching he's given in chapters 1 to 8, his Jewish readers are going to be very perplexed. Because he has systematically leveled the ground between Jew and Gentile and shown that all are alike condemned, all alike can only be justified by faith. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and so on. And so the Jew would say to him, Paul, we're not challenging what you're saying, but what about all God's promises to the nation? We're, we're familiar with the idea that the Gentile will eventually come into blessing through the Jew, but you're teaching that it's a level field. So, so what's happened to these promises that God's made to us as a nation? And so he takes chapters 9, 10, and 11 to explain that. Israel's past in chapter 9, their present state in chapter 10, and their future in chapter 11. That's broadly speaking. So in that section where we've been reading in chapter 11, the chapter commences with Paul asking the question, in order that he may answer it, of course. He asks the question, Hath God cast away permanently his people? So it's not me saying all these websites that teach otherwise are wrong. This is the very question Paul asked in Romans chapter uh, 11 and verse 1. Here's the question, has God permanently cast away his people? His response, far be the thought, God forbid. And look at the first uh, appeal he makes against that idea. I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath 
not cast away his people, which he foreknew. You can see his point. If God's cast aside his people, he says, how am I saved? I'm here. And he's going to point out to them that uh, just as God has always had a remnant in the past, and he goes back to Elijah's day, he says in verse 5, even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. He's saying there's Jews who are in the church. That is a remnant according to the election of grace. There are Jews in the church today. Clearly God hasn't written off the nation of Israel. Think how Paul was saved. We've heard a bit about it from our beloved brother. Listen to what he said to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, verse 16. Howbeit, for this cause, I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering, watch this, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul says, my conversion was a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Is that how you got saved? You get saved as Paul got saved? A light shining from heaven above the brightness of the noonday sun? Is that how you got saved? No. No. That's because he wasn't talking about you. He wasn't talking about me. He says, I'm persuaded of this, I'm convinced of this, that when I got saved, that I was being used as a pattern for those who will be saved in a day to come. He's talking about his fellow Jews, who in a day to come will be gloriously converted when they see Christ appearing in glory. He said, that's what I saw. I saw Christ in glory. And that's a pattern for those who will be, who will believe to life everlasting in a day to come. You see in the context he's speaking about a future for the nation, not just their existence, but their divine blessing. Remember how he said in 1 Corinthians 15, as he spoke about his apostleship, he said it's different from that of the others. Yes, they all saw the Lord in resurrection, but he said, last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. He said, I was born before the time. I was premature. What do you mean, Paul? He said, well, I saw Christ in a way that was premature. The nation is yet to see him like that. But when they do see him like that, the nation will be restored. Paul was in absolutely no doubt as he penned these verses that there is a glorious future for the nation of Israel. Not only their prolonged existence, but their blessing under the hand of God. He makes reference to uh, Old Testament scripture. He goes back to Isaiah. He goes back to uh, Jeremiah, but then he says in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? To put it another way, have they stumbled never to rise again? Is this it? Did they push things too far? They've had their low points before. 
Are they never going to recover from this? God forbid, far be the thought. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. For to provoke them, Israel, to jealousy. Now, if the fall of Israel be the riches of the world and the diminishing of Israel, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. We've to thank God, you know, for Israel's history. Now, all this was in the purpose of God, of course. None of this took God by surprise. The church wasn't some kind of reaction by God to Israel's rejection of Christ. The church was there in Christ before the foundation of the world. No, not at all. But it was through the occasion of Israel's fall that divine blessing then went out to the Gentiles. And he gives an illustration. Uh, He speaks about this uh, olive tree, and uh, he speaks about the fact that uh, this olive tree, it's a picture of testimony for God in the world. Don't read these verses and, and look at it thinking it's about individuals or about individual believers or anything like that. It's really about nations. And, and Israel should have been the nation that, like an olive tree, bore testimony for God and his goodness and faithfulness in world history. But he said they failed in it. So what God did, even though it's contrary to nature, he took the weaker branch and he grafted it in to the stronger. In nature, you would do the other way around. But he, he grafted the weaker into the stronger so that there would be fruit born for his glory. He's bringing in Gentile nations to testify to his goodness. But then he turns to those Gentile nations and he says, don't you boast now that you have been grafted in, because if you don't behave yourselves, I can cut you off just as quickly as I did Israel. In fact, the nation into which I was born is one such nation, I believe. And God greatly used the nations that formed the United Kingdom for centuries, greatly used us. Tremendous to think how such a small island really was responsible for sending the gospel out into so many parts of the world. We were grafted in. But I tell you, if ever a nation was ripe for the judgment of God, I'm afraid it's our nation now. We've spurned all that kindness and goodness of God. We've cast it back into his face. And we're deliberately provoking him now to wrath. I trust that God will have mercy on us. That's why we need to pray for our respective nations. God has blessed this nation. And he grafts in the wild into the the olive tree. But even as he grafted in, he can easily cut it off again. So, so, so don't look at this, these verses uh, as being about individual Christians being cut off or anything. It's nothing to do with that. It's all about testimony for God uh, in this particular age. And that leads him on then to the verse that we read together in verse 25. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this hitherto unrevealed truth. I want you to know about it. You might wonder why on a Sunday afternoon full of roast turkey uh, and everything else and stuffing, well, why do I need to know about it? Well, Paul said, we mustn't be ignorant of this. 
that God has got this wonderful future in mind for his people. So, with that in mind, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, the fullness of the Gentiles is this age in which we're living. When the gospel is being preached, when predominantly, according to Acts 15, predominantly the church is being gathered out from among the Gentiles to form a people for his name. The rapture, the coming of the Lord Jesus to the air for his people, the taking home uh, to heaven of the church in its entirety will close this age of grace. It will bring about the end of the time called the fullness of the Gentiles. And then God will start to deal with his people again. That's why the brethren who taught me often used to describe this age in which we're living as being almost like a parenthesis in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. He's put them to one side. Today he's dealing with the church. When the church is complete, he will resume his dealings with Israel. In case you haven't read Ezekiel chapter 39 lately, Let's just turn to it, please, for a few verses. Paul has already made reference in the chapter Romans 11. He's made reference to Ezekiel 37. He says in Romans 11:15, If the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And that's, that's Ezekiel chapter 37. That's that valley of dry bones. Can these bones live? Uh, and he watches, amazed, as the bones all start to come together. And I know the tune is going through your head right now. <laughs> but when you come to chapter 39, this is immediately before we have the chapters in Ezekiel where the restoration of the city and the sanctuary happen. Now we're dealing with the restoration of the people. The uh, nation of Israel in the middle of the tribulation period will come under a terrible assault from um, uh, a confederation of kingdoms from the north and from the south, I think probably Islamically motivated. And um, they will fall upon Israel, which in turn is looking to the west for its defense. They are defenseless themselves. They have traded their own uh, right to defend themselves uh, as part of a peace pact. They're dependent upon the West to guard them. And in spite of that, these enemies will fall upon them from the North and the South. And uh, of all the combatants in the uh, tribulation period, it's these alone who are destroyed directly by God. He doesn't use any other agency. He doesn't use other armies or powers. God destroys them himself. And uh, that's all described in the book of Ezekiel. That might wet your whistle to go and have a read of it. But um, as that, as that uh, foreign power is destroyed, uh, something is triggered in the nation that will certainly set the remnant the godly remnant of the nation, it will set them with great evangelical zeal to go amongst the nations of the world with the gospel of the kingdom. And the way Ezekiel describes that trigger point is in verse 22 of chapter 39. 
And he says, So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Because they trespassed against me, therefore hid I my face from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies, so fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After that they have borne their shame, and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. And that would lead you, and us if there were time which there isn't, into the prophecy of Joel. And that, of course, is what Peter assumed had taken place on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. What a wonderful joined-up Bible we have. But in the moments we've got left, let's just think about verse 26. What is it that's going to cause the restoration of these people after that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me? Young brethren, young sisters, increasing in your knowledge of God and his word, what do you know about the Day of Atonement? If we had a little chat, could you talk me through the Day of Atonement? Where is it found? Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 23. You might say, I don't read Leviticus. You know, it's such a weird book. You know, it's all about chopped up animals and fat and gore. And No, I don't read Leviticus. Well, listen, you should. You really should. For the simple reason, if nothing else, that, that at the end of the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle, the sanctuary, is erected, then the sad thing is, God is inside, the glory of God is there, but Moses was outside. He couldn't go in. God had said, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell with them, and yet Moses can't dwell with God because he's a sinner. And the next book in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... The book of Leviticus opens with God speaking to Moses out of the tabernacle of the congregation. God's inside, Moses is outside. But when you come to the book of Numbers, that book begins, and God spoke to Moses in the tabernacle of the congregation. And we're also given dates. We're told that the tabernacle was reared up on the first day of the first month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. 
And we're told in the book of Numbers that God spoke to Moses then on the first day of the second month of the second year. So only one month has elapsed between the end of Exodus and the beginning of Numbers. And something in that month has happened that allows the man who's outside at the end of Exodus and the beginning of Leviticus to be inside at the beginning of Numbers. Is that not tremendous? All that's happened in one month. That's why the book of Leviticus is often described as the book of access into the presence of God. It will teach us with glorious pictures how can a man who's debarred from the presence of God at the end of Exodus and the first verse of Leviticus, how can he be communing with God in the tabernacle one month later? That's what Leviticus is about. And it's in Leviticus you'll read about the great day of atonement, that day Yom Kippur in the, in the experience of the people of Israel, when on that great day uh, a sacrifice was made that would deal with the sins of the people. You'll be a better gospel preacher if you know about the Day of Atonement. Because the principles of the Day of Atonement are the principles of the gospel we preach today. Because there was going to be one sin offering, but it constituted two goats. The two goats made one sin offering. One was for the Lord. One was going to be the scapegoat. The one that was for the Lord was slain. And its blood was taken in through the outer court, through the sanctuary, taken into the very holiest of all, and it was sprinkled before and on the mercy seat to testify to the fact that sacrifice had been made that had given God the righteous basis upon which he was about to forgive the sins of the people. That's the truth of propitiation. That's the work of Christ at Calvary on behalf of a whole world. It's why we can preach the gospel unashamedly and confidently to the whosoever. The propitiatory work of Christ has laid the foundation for God to be merciful to all. The second goat is going to be readied to symbolically have the sins of the people confessed on its head and led away by the hand of a fit man into a place uninhabited. But, crucially, what isn't mentioned in Leviticus 16, but is in chapter 23, is that in between the death of the first goat and the leading away of the second goat, the people afflict their souls. They become aware with a deep consciousness of the gravity of their sins. That this is all necessary because they are sinners. Their sins have offended their God. And there's a deep affliction of soul. And consequent upon the affliction of soul, the high priest confesses the sins upon the head of the life goat, it's led away. And when we preach the gospel... The propitiatory work of Christ means we preach confidently to all. But unless there is affliction of soul, conviction of sin, an awareness of one's personal responsibility and offense to God, the sinner will not cry to God for mercy and for salvation. When they do, when faith is placed savingly in Christ, immediately all their sins are dealt with there and then for eternity. And the one who shed his blood to lay that propitiatory ground upon which God can forgive, they now know Christ as their personal substitute. 
But you see, the Day of Atonement, though it was annual for Israel, it has a prophetic view as well. When they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, what they didn't know was that he was giving himself, according to Galatians 3, he was giving himself to bear the curse that hung over their heads because of a broken law. He delivered Israel from the curse of the law through his death. And his blood laid the basis for the new covenant that they've yet to come into. His death on behalf of the nation of Israel was like the death of the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell. The preparatory work is done. But the sins of the nation cannot and will not be forgiven and taken away until they know affliction of soul. And even today, that nation is proud and haughty and arrogant. They're completely unrepentant. And that's why they've got to go through the time that Jeremiah 30 calls the time of Jacob's trouble. It's why they've got to go through that tribulation. It's not punishment. It's God, it's God dealing with his people to drive them to their knees in repentance. And it will take every day of that tribulation period, every ounce of that suffering, more than they've ever known as a nation before, but thank God it will work. Eventually it will work. And as it seems they're on the point of extinction, the nation will look heavenwards. I look unto the hills, they will say, like the psalmist, from whence cometh my help is the question. And they'll say, my help cometh from the Lord. And they'll turn heavenward. And they'll make confession. And as soon as there's affliction of soul, as soon as there's confession of sin, God said, as far as the east is from the west, so far will I remove their transgressions from them. He's promised to give that nation a new heart. He's promised to cleanse them. He's promised to restore them. They're going to be the government of God upon earth in the millennial reign of Christ, just as we will be the government of God in heaven in that same period. Oh, my dear saints. Yeah, this is today, but very soon. These things are going to happen. We're going to embark upon a glorious future. If there's glory for Israel, how much more for the church? As we reign with Christ in his millennial reign, and Israel restored, the city restored, the sanctuary restored, Zion, beautiful for situation, all the Old Testament sacrifices restored, not, of course, for the putting away of sin or anything like that. That's all been dealt with by the death of Christ. But for the first time in their national experience, these people will understand what all those Old Testament sacrifices were about. And in a memorial way, they will be proclaiming the work and the person of Christ in all its glory throughout that millennial reign, preaching effectively a gospel to those who were born in the millennium, still sinners, needing God's salvation. But what a glorious prospect will be before them as a people restored proclaim the glories of the man they once rejected and saw no beauty in. Don't let anyone seduce you into thinking that God has put Israel away and has got nothing more to do with them. There's a wonderful future for that nation. And God will keep his promises to them every bit as he will keep his promises to us because he's a God who cannot lie. We trust God will bless his word.